This is Marketing Jam, a show featuring the brightest minds in marketing. Brought to you by Canada Post. Head to canadapost.ca forward slash insight podcast for ideas to add value to your marketing. Welcome to another episode of Marketing Jam. This is a special week in that we partnered with the folks at YVRPR to bring to you an incredibly important discussion. They hosted a session recently about Black Lives Matter and how it impacts those in marketing and those in PR, and they allowed us the chance to share it with the greater audience across the country. Thank you to the fine folks at YVRPR for hosting this discussion, and for those that are listening, uh, our audience, our fans, uh, our friends, our family, I hope this episode gives you some thought-provoking questions, gives you the chance to learn, to pause, and gives us all a chance to really look inside ourselves and look inside the brands that we're marketing, the brands that we're working for, and how can we make a difference, and what are some changes that we need to make. Without further ado, here's the discussion. So my name's Dan Gamble. I'm one of the organizers here at YBRPR, and I run uh, this group alongside uh, Crystal. Um, my day job is head of PR and corporate communications at Broadband TV, headquartered in Vancouver, and I've actually been there for nearly, actually, seven years this month. Um, as background, I created YBRPR a number of years ago now, and the goal was to uh, bring the Vancouver PR community together, although I do know uh, we have people from the UK and from Toronto today, so great to see all of you. Um, ultimately, uh, we created the group to, to allow people to help and learn from each other, and that's that's really what we're, we're wanting to do today. So it's fab to see so many familiar faces. Uh, it's also great to see so many new faces too. Um, and we had around 150 people registered, and I think it's safe to say that without question, um, this is the most important conversation that YVRPR has had to date. Um, we've got two incredible speakers that we will introduce to you shortly. Um, we also want to thank Darian and the team from Jelly Marketing um, for making a thousand dollar donation to Black Lives Matter. Um, and thank, you know, thanks again to our speakers for agreeing to share this, uh, this important conversation. Uh, so Crystal, I wanted to pass to you quickly for a quick intro. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Um, so I'm Crystal. Um, I lead Front and Center. We're a boutique PR firm in Vancouver, and we work with challenger brands that are disrupting their industries. Um, so obviously, I co-lead YPR PR with Dan, and I think we're really excited today because you know 150 people registered, about 70 of us in joining today, and you know, what we see, the eternal optimist in me is I see the potential where we can, um, you know, have 70 plus companies, if not more, actually create change and respond to lives matter. And to really start that process is something that we're really honored to be a part of. A quick few things on housekeeping. So we're going to spend about 45 minutes on questions we prepare. Um, and then we want, really want to open it up for Q&A. Uh, today really is about listening and asking questions. So if a question pops up during the discussion, please use chat. And then at the 45 minute mark, we will also you know, take questions from the group. And you can use the raise hand function, which is uh, just below if you click on participants and then uh, you'll see raise hand. 
before we dive into it all, I, I think we just want to take a second and, and level set and, and really make sure we're all listening today in the right mind frame. So as PR professionals, we have a lot of privilege. And you might not realize that. I, I certainly didn't. But, you know, we have a lot of power and um, a lot of opportunity to make impact. So, you know, in our day to day, a lot of the time what we do is, you know, working with media, making decisions with influencers, figuring out who we're paying and how much. And, you know, a lot of that time, like it could seem like, oh, this is a, a work task or another to do to kind of check off the list, but it's actually um, the opportunity to create change in small ways. So we really hope today is the, the start of that, of changing perspectives and really understanding the power we all have. Um, we're definitely not the experts on Black Lives Matter, so really grateful to have Tommy and Marlon here today. So thank you again for participating and uh, I'll hand it over to Dan to do quick intros. Great, thank you, Crystal. Okay, so we have Tommy Elizabeth Sojourner Campbell, Managing Director of Tommy uh, Sojourner Consulting. Um, Tommy integrates equity, diversity, inclusion, anti-racism and anti-oppression approaches into her consulting um, L&D practices. Um, if you haven't already, I know we shared some info, please check out her LinkedIn profile, check out her website, um, especially if you are looking for corporate training on equity, inclusion and transformation, and we can share this again uh, as a follow-up. Uh, we also have Marlon Thompson, Pro uh, Program Director at Highline Beta. Uh, Marlon spent the last five years working within the nonprofit and venture funding ecosystems to ensure uh, the opportunities in startup, VC, and angel investing are accessible for everyone. Uh, in his current role with Harlan Beta, he's focused on creating gender equality in the startup and innovation space from the top down. Um, so great to have you both here. Thank you again. Um, Tommy, starting with you, maybe you could give us a short introduction. Okay, well, thank you so much for inviting me. This is very exciting. Um, I've spent a lot of time uh, teaching and getting used to being in different spaces and having really challenging and different, difficult conversations. So it's nice to be in this space where, you know, I, it's going to be really dynamic and I think challenging as well. But um, so a little bit extra about who I am. Um, on top of being the manager, managing director of uh, Tommy Sojourner Consulting Income, also uh, two-time um, program director at a Osgood Hall Law School, which is based here in Toronto uh, at York University. It's one of the leading law schools uh, in the country. And what I do there, uh, I teach a program that I designed. It's called Lawyer Lawyering Using an Anti-Oppression, Anti-Racism Lens. And uh, so I've been able to, you know, influence and have conversations with up and coming lawyers and also people in different fields um, that are interested in that particular subject matter. Uh, and I'm, you know, quite excited in terms of the challenges and the ability that I get to work with a lot of dynamic people uh, on a regular basis. And um, I'm going to leave it at that and then continue on once we get into the groove of the conversation. So I'm still, I feel like I'm just getting warmed up. Thanks. Uh, you got it. Thank you, Tommy. Uh, Marlon, over to you. Hi, yeah. Um, yeah, thanks again for having me. I'm super excited about this conversation because 
I, I think it's really important for a number of obvious reasons, but I, I think especially the audience that we have today has an outsized potential um, to have an outsized impact. Um, so I think it's a really um, worthy cause. So um, a little bit about myself. Uh, I spent the last uh, seven years, actually I moved to, I just realized today that I moved to Vancouver seven years ago today <laughs> um, and I came out here to work for a startup and I spent the last seven years working with startups. Um, the first couple of years um, out here, I, I was working, like gaining operational experience within startups. Um, I worked for a couple different um, notable companies um, in Vancouver. And then um, the last, as Dan mentioned, the last five years I've really spent within the startup ecosystem. If you're not familiar with like that phrase or that term, it's just, um, you know, the organizations, companies, um, funding bodies, uh, government groups that uh, facilitate um, innovation and startup uh, creation so and growth. So, um, Really, like why my background I think is relevant to this audience is because I really spend a lot of my time, I mean, working with um, corporations. Um, we, I work Highland Bay as a corporate VC, so they, um, they work with corporations to co-invest in ventures and startups. Um, so I, I understand kind of like the executive lens and what um, uh, leaders of companies, large and small, are looking for and looking at what's important to them. And um, mm -hmm. I also uh, work with, you know, uh, across the kind of early stage ecosystem with startup founders. And I think there's a huge opportunity in front of us to support a really diverse cohort of founders um, that will have a really big impact from an economic perspective. So again, just like Tommy, I feel like I'm kind of getting <laughs> warmed up as well, but I'll, I'll end it there for now. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Marlon. Okay, well, why don't we um, start the conversation by hearing about your experiences, um, both personal and professional. And maybe, Tommy, we, we start with you. Okay. Um, you know, in terms of my personal experiences, so looking at anti-Black racism, it's a lifetime experience, really. Uh, if you're embodied and, and walk in this world and move in this world as a, as a, as a Black person, and, um, and so for me, I can say that my earliest memory of dealing with anti-Black racism in, in different forms is when I was in grade school and, you know, in situations where, in, in my, my situation at least, um, is unique in a sense that although I was born in Ottawa, I was raised all over the world. So I lived in places like Penang, Malaysia. Um, I've lived in places like Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. I graduated from high school of the United Arab Emirates in Sharjah, and I went to boarding school in Scotland. And I, I can share with you a little insight to what, you know, when I was going to school uh, in Scotland at the time, uh, it was in the 80s. I was uh, the only one of two black children in a school with, I think, 500 students. And it was a boarding school. So I don't know if any of you who are watching or listening have ever been to boarding school. It can be one of those places that you learn to grow up quite quickly. Um, what I experienced in those spaces was um, a lot of camaraderie, but a lot of othering. And I think that helped shape my understanding of the fact that anti-Black racism is quite transnational in its scope. And, um, and part of my lived experience and, and, and my upbringing, I was able to transform that in fact into the work that I ended up doing and what I'm doing now. And so I take those experiences 
And I, I moved with that into my undergraduate work um, at Carleton University. And, and I, started study, I started to study and not only the advocacy part of how do you deal with systemic racism, how do you deal with anti-Black racism uh, in a number of, of different areas, but also through studying and trying to understand the theoretical construct by you know, how people are ordered and, and organized in the world and why is there assumptions around superiority and inferiority and, and how do I, in the capacity that I have, make a fundamental change using my, my sort of unique lens because of the way I traveled and, and the background that I have. And I should also mention that I'm a member of the Black queer community I'm also uh, a multiracial background. Uh, most people don't know that by just appearance. And so I have a white British father and a black Jamaican mother who's also of mixed race background um, or mixed ethnic background in terms of her, of her family tree, if you will. Um, we have folks from, uh, who are Chinese background. Um, so my heritage is quite mixed. And I think that also ends, lends itself into a different space around trying to deconstruct what Black Lives Matter and, and why this, this conversation in this time is so important. And, uh, and uh, I'll pass it over to Marlon. Thank you, Tommy. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so I mean, my experience, just like anyone else's, is uh, you know, deeply personal. And um, I think just to build off of what Tommy was saying that I was thinking about this analogy earlier this week and I think um, you know the way that I've always existed is uh, I've known that the color of my skin um, is uh, like can be a target depending on who's looking at me um, so there's like an invisible threat um, be it whether or not it's real or not like we experience that that you're walking around and carrying around and it really does um, uh, shape your identity over time. And I think that experience is collective. It's pretty universal, I'd say, across the board. Like, I don't know many um, Black people that can't relate to that. Um, and I think that uh, it forms and creates a sense of camaraderie on one hand, which is, um, you know, I think evident in the way that Black people express their culture um, and uh, and their ideas and, and who they are. Um, but it also is a kind of this ongoing repetitive, um, like, micro-trauma that um, I think uh, is really important um, when we're talking about Black Lives Matter and we're trying to understand um, the effects of the um, disease that is racism, that is kind of really sprouting up. So my experience um, as just like a person has been uh, like largely um, uh, driven by that simple fact. And I think we all like a lot, of, I, I assume a lot of the people on the call here have seen like a lot of the videos about what it means to have privilege and uh, I think it's like an important learning that everyone, a lot of people are doing right now and, and experiencing and it's very uh, stunning for a lot of people to understand what that might mean or what that might look like. And, and I think the, that coupled with the visuals of what we're seeing in the States um, and the violence is uh, really connecting the dots that um, we haven't really been able to do effectively in the past. And, um, you know, where my from a person, uh, professional perspective, um, my my experience has always been that of like um, someone that hasn't really ever 
have the confidence or felt the um, assurance that I can put my hand up for like a new role or put my hand up for an opportunity or put myself forward. And that's, you know, my own personal, ex that's, that's me <laughs> for sure. That's not anyone else, but that, that has always been my experience. But I think, um, you know, we'll, we'll touch on this later, but I think that the success that I've had within my career has really been um, made possible by advocacy of others. Um, so like the, the doors that have been opened for me or the moments or instances in my career where someone has actually stepped aside so that I could step forward, that, that is, that, that's like largely been, a, a, it's been an important theme um, across the kind of trajectory of my career. So um, it's something that I, I wanna talk a lot about, um, you know, today and in the future, like the importance of advocacy. And I think from uh, like, corporate or even like like any size of company like that is that is like one kind of bucket where we could probably spend some time discussing like like what can companies do better and how can they tie that into their message but that's that's been my personal experience one of like really um uh i feel like i need to like overachieve or over um or like excel uh, beyond um what is actually probably really necessary. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, I think that's kind of what's relevant for this conversation. Thank you both for sharing that. And um, Molin, you know, you obviously mentioned that there's been a lot of videos and obviously uh, we're talking about privilege. Molin knows this. It was a video that I watched from Molin that triggered today's conversation. So, um, yeah, if I could add just a, a point to that, I, like one thing that I really experienced, like, well, that I experienced really acutely last week um, that I've been working through on, on the, again, like on the personal side is the experience of watching all those videos <laughs> as a black person is not enjoyable. Like I, I was not enjoying any media at all because and i'm not saying anyone was enjoying it. i think you know it was productive for sure and it needs it need to happen i need to continue but um one thing to consider and this is relevant i think for um anyone that's in communications is that the kind of like inundation being inundated by images of like people being murdered because of having the color of skin that you have is deeply traumatic. <laughs> um, so that's like for your consumers, for your employees, for anyone, like what, like their, their needs, I think we're now like finally stepping into a place where brands and individuals are like taking a breath and hopefully like actually like learning, um, spending this time mm -hmm. to better understand what's happening. Um, but where we were at last week was really hard to manage for me. I don't know if that was your experience, Tommy, but I, I was, um, really struggling to like really take in any media. <laughs> I mean, to be realistic, and for me at least in my experience, and also because of the nature of my job, I my I work twenty four hours a day on um, anti black racism and and anti oppression, and so being inundated on a personal level and seeing the devastation that's happening in communities, like I I've sort of lived a lifetime of different experiences and to to see the video of what happened with George Floyd and to see the consistent and, you know, um, degradation and the trauma that's put against and put upon um, black bodies from queer black folks, disabled black folks, like just, uh, you know, the diaspora of, and the, 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 
the diversity of, of Black people that live in, in Canada and in, in this world. And to know that, I've also, I was certainly from my experience when I saw the trauma, it reminded me of times of I've had interaction with police officers. So, you know, in terms of, in terms of seeing that and not, and not being impacted would be impossible. And so, um, you know, my wife, uh, my wife and Jerry, she's an employment and labor lawyer and what she does in her work and, uh, you know, is talking to people about different things, but together as a couple, we're watching different shows and different and different videos and seeing um, people that could be us or are part of our communities. Um, being badly damaged and in some cases murdered uh, right in front of our eyes. And I think it's, it's been an oversaturation of, of violence and trauma. And, and to Marlon's point, um, you know, it's, there's vicarious trauma, there's secondary trauma, and then there's generational and intergenerational trauma. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's really, um, you know, beyond uh, wreaking havoc and being devastating. I think for me, I had a conversation last week with my 86-year-old mother who came to Canada um, a number of decades ago, and she was a, was a retired public health nurse um, who studied in England, and she was saying, you know, we've lived this experience all of our lives. And so to have that conversation about the fight for someone who was born in the 30s, like 1930, I'd imagine that experience before Second World War and growing up in those spaces and being a black woman who was around for the civil rights movement, et cetera, um, to now fast forward into 2020 and to see that it's still the same or similar iterations of violence uh, on our bodies and in our spaces and the impact on our mental health and our wellness. Um, I think at this point in his history and time, we are now in a spot where people are actually ready to name anti-Black racism. Yeah. They're ready to say it's not just one person's experience, but it's a collective global transnational experience. Um, and, and we need to do something to activate folks to make that change. And, and so you know, now we're here, right? Yeah, and I would yeah. just yeah. take that maybe just half a step further too and say, the, from the generational, I've been doing a lot of investigating on my own side, like about about like my lineage, and there's a basically a stopping point for any Black uh, North American because our um, history and our ancestry was not carried across the water with us. So all we know of our like history and our lineage is being. Um, is that like this dehumanizing experience. And I think it's really important for that to be reflected back to um, the rest of the population who hasn't had that experience. And, and I think it's a painful pill to swallow and we're watching a lot of like um, non-black people um, recognize that. And, and I think the, yeah. that, that is the collective um, trauma and grief that people are going through. That I think you really have to understand that uh, all of that, which, and it's a complex, and none of that is like, it's, I, I wouldn't walk, say anyone could walk away from this conversation saying they fully understand it. Like it's, it takes a lot of work and effort and time and concentration and focus to understand how all of those things piece together. Um, but that, in my humble opinion, is the only way to, to actually create like any sort of effective solutions. So yeah. on the individual level, as organizations, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Thank you both of you for, for sharing all of that.
Um, I guess moving from there, um, I think it would be really valuable to hear your perspectives on the systemic issues surrounding racial injustice and inequality, obviously informed from your unique experience. Um, do you um, want to... Marlon, Marlon, why don't you go first? Sorry, coming. Yeah, I think we're already kind of touching on it. Um, yeah. There's, uh, I think the advocacy, for me, like I always look at it from my own personal experience and I think um, the, let me back out, actually the, the work that I have done over the past five years has all really been about um, creating systemic change. So I've got a pretty strong perspective on what that usually looks like. And um, my, my approach and the approach that um, the companies and firms that I've been working with uh, have taken is really top down. So um, for example, uh, the project that I'm, one project that I'm working on right now um, is uh, we are looking at the um, entire startup ecosystem. It's, there's like tons of reporting. We've, we're just about to release a report about this, um, that it's all white men that have uh, the, the, that have the, where the wealth accumulates and where the power accumulates, it's like there's one profile and there's like a few different um, kind of uh, groups that are creeping into those uh, decision-making tables. But by and large, it's, it's a white man's economy. And, um, you know, the approach that, that we take at work and the, like, the approach that I believe in is um, really looking at the, uh, the fact that um, we just naturally um, trust and believe in people that look like us more. We feel more comfortable with those people. So the, really the most effective way, in my opinion, to affect change is to um, change those decision-making tables. And we can audit that really easily. Um, and there's a movement happening right now called the pull-up movement. I'm not sure if anybody like, is aware of it, but it's basically, um, you know, like forcing or asking or demanding big corporations to give us a breakdown of their leadership team. And, uh, and then you can go from there. You can look at that and say, okay, so um, like, uh, for example, Honey, Jessica Alba's company has shared that they've got like something like 30% of their leaders are black women. So it's like, that's super encouraging because that's really not the case almost anywhere. <laughs> like it's, and because you have to know that that's been done by design in order for that to happen. It doesn't happen by accident. I think that like, when I think of systemic change, I always think of it from that angle because um, it's just, you know, I think setting us ourselves up um, to deal with like our human nature, which is that we're going to, we're going to hire people that are like us. So we need more diversity at the very top levels, top layers of the economy. And I think the same it can be said about political systems and cultural and social systems as well. Yeah. And, and just to add to your point, um, in terms of the work that I do, the, the companies that I work for I, are law firms and I've worked for a number of not-for-profit um, uh, sector areas, uh, particularly um, food banks, food security, and, um, and other agencies. And what I've found is that when we talk about systemic change, uh, there's sometimes a disconnect between systems changing and in sort of individual behaviors and cultural change within their organization. And so the work that I've 
done and, and the, the conversations that we're having currently, particularly as it applies to Black Lives Matter and um, issues around inclusion and representation is to find ways to, because for some folks it's overwhelming when we think of can we change a system, but getting companies and organizations to realize that the changes that they're making are within their own circle and it, it trickles out and expands out into different communities. Um, part of that is looking at either a top-down approach depending on the hierarchy that exists at those decision-making tables I, th I would say that not-for-profit is probably more uh, racially and ethnically diverse in large urban centers. And so, I, but in corporate Canada, it's a different conversation. And um, so, you know, having representation at the top still, although it's predominantly white men and white women, and, and the push that really has been in the last few years around gender representation and ensuring that there are more women at the board to make decisions. What doesn't get analyzed or discussed is, when, is the issue of intersectionality. Because what white women, like particularly it's white women that are being pushed to the front and not black women or queer women, et cetera. And so I think that the, the part of this work that I do, at least with the companies that I have uh, an opportunity to work with and people that I have influence with, is to say that if you're looking at decision-making bodies, when they get to that table, what are you doing? If they're simply there as a token to have a conversation, but the moment they push too hard or mention something that ripples the, the waters, they're then either pushed to the side or they're not included in the conversation, but they're like great in a photo op and a press release. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Sorry, Marlon, go for it. I'm yeah. nodding vigorously because. Um, as I just mentioned, we are actually just getting ready to publish a report on this exact topic. So looking at um, women in venture capital and investing, and uh, again, like if you understand uh, the startup ecosystem, even if you don't, like just based on the nature of the role of those, um, those uh, decision-making tables, they get to pick the winners or losers in the economy, essentially. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and who, and yeah. who gets to like, basically get on what we call a wealth escalator that will take you from like, you know, this bracket up into like the stratosphere, depending on the success of a company. Um, and but like, again, by and large, I think it's something like eight, seven percent of them are white men. And then the and then that other 13 percent is mostly white women, as you said. And I'm glad you pointed that right. out because um, intersectionality, the lack of intersectionality in, um, in corporate leadership and and in governance in general, I'd say, is um, is the it's, it's a layer of complexity that you need to go to to affect like lasting, significant change um, on a yeah. systemic level. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thank you. I think that's a really good segue to our next question, and we've touched on it a little bit, um, but. Could you share your thoughts on, you know, what is the role of companies and leaders um, on making things better and corrective changes and creating action? We could start um, with you, me. Okay. Um, in terms of what companies can do, you know, I think that because we're in a moment in time where companies are issuing public statements saying they support Black communities, Black Lives Matter, they're articulating that they're actually um, thinking about anti-black racism. The time is now that companies need to do more than obviously uh, issue a statement and then what's the next level. So the complexity is actually doing, uh, in the work that I do with the human resources folks, for example, 
um, is looking at all of their employment systems. So it's a review of the recruitment strategies, their hiring practices, promotion and valuation, and also the end of an employment, um, the end of employment relationship. If they're looking at uh, how many black folks are distributed in frontline operations, right? If you're, if you're looking at uh, people that are in support roles, administrative roles, and then moving throughout the organization, companies using that lens and starting to think more deeply and critically about that is essential. And um, the last point I'll make, because I'm mindful of our time and I want to make sure that we are all able to, to share some thoughts and hear from people, is that at this moment in time, depending on the industry, companies really need to think more critically about how they implement and, uh, their equity, diversity, and inclusion strategies. That's my area of expertise. What I find is that companies now are struggling with the answer to anti-Black racism is just to do more uh, racial bias training or unconscious bias training or uh, improve their diversity and inclusion strategy. That's actually not the answer. Because if they're not doing a systemic review of systemic discrimination and racism and looking at the hard pieces underneath the pretty foundation, which is often diversity and inclusion, um, then we're, they're not going to get as far as they need to be in order to not have only increase the representation of people in their employment, but also looking at their work and business practices. What kind of cultures are they creating for folks? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I would co-sign on all of the above. I think you're, you're definitely the expert in this. Uh, like what, the way I see it, um, the, and I'll, I'll use the term again, but I think companies need to really understand how to advocate for um, people within their sectors or um, people trying to enter like an industry um, or the people in their companies um, and creating real hard opportunities for them to advance professionally and accumulate more wealth. Cause let's be let's just like own it. We live in a capitalist structure and people need money and that's how they get but that's how they improve their lives, period. So I think that is, um, you know, that is a really complex um, uh, concept, I think, you know, like just advocacy and what that means and what a company can do. But I think it's a really important place to start um, spending some time. Uh, if I were, um, you know, like a CEO of a big corporation, I would look at like internship programs, giving people real op like operational experience um, and focusing them on marginalized groups specifically. So, and so we're carving out like 10 interns, just making up something up on the spot, but like 10 internships for black women to um, get their feet wet in venture capital. That, like, that would be a really good way um, for a company to put their money where their mouth is. Um, I, and I, I use the term internship, but like everything should be paid, I, I believe. So I, I mean, roles, like opportunities, um, entry-level roles, like that's, that is like the way, like the way that I've kind of advanced in my career has all been like step-by-step. Step. Um, I, I didn't really kind of um, leapfrog anywhere. It was, it's been like slow and plotting. And I think that you have to go uh, top down, but you also can't, like as a company, you can actually go bottom up as well. Sorry, I was on mute there. And <laughs> Uh, that was really insightful. Um, how does, you know, brand and storytelling play into this and how does that function come into, into what we do? I guess, starting with Marlon. 
Yeah, my, my thoughts on, I mean, so I don't have like a huge platform, but I am using it right now to really encourage the people that I know um, to be better consumers and have a better understanding of um, what their, the companies and the brands that they support, like what they're actually um, doing to go beyond virtue signaling. So there's like a learning process behind that because I think a lot of consumers don't even understand what virtue signaling is. Um, and so and that's why it works <laughs> so well. Um, but I mean, you can, Gillette can put together a commercial about like masculinity, but um, are they doing anything to advance the women in their company? Like, is there, do they have anything in place? So I, I think, you know, um, the importance of brand and storytelling is, um, it's almost secondary to what the company's actually doing. And I think uh, probably like communications, you know, the, the work that I've done, I work with a lot of like, um, PR folks and big companies and because that that is oftentimes where the um, intention to do anything that's uh, socially responsible um, that's usually where it emanates unfortunately it's about a press release and I've heard CEOs say this like we care about the press release um, uh, when they're putting like hundreds of thousands of dollars into something you know like and so and that is just the way it works that's that's way like philanthropy works a lot of the time. And um, I think companies just need to go further. Like, and, and I think the key to that is a, a consumer base that's more educated and more aware of um, what meaningful actions look like. Um, so I think from a brand and storytelling perspective, perspective, if you can identify something that a company is really doing, tell that story um, versus like empty, meaningless, like, logo changes or like a black square i'm i'm also part of the lgbt community and for me like the um pride month uh kind of like uh i don't even know what to call it it's kind of a like a, a mess i almost used a curse word there but that is that is essentially like totally destroyed um what it means for a brand to support pride in my opinion because it's become so like just driven by Right. marketing and uh it's so clear and blatant and you see um i won't name any names actually but i've seen some like really like some attempts where you see a brand trying to do something to show that they're in solidarity but in that thing that they're doing you can see they didn't talk to one gay person because they got the cultural reference wrong and like i think it's the same thing has to be applied here where it's like yeah you can tell a story you can like craft a really like thoughtful message but you have to be talking about the things that will actually enact change or else in my opinion it doesn't mean anything it means literally nothing if you're just acknowledging something um, and not doing anything about it it's the same it's the same thing that people are going through on an individual level right now where they're seeing their racist parents or like someone in their family or seeing themselves like their own behavior or something that they've done in the past um, and they're kind of having to reckon with the fact that we can't really get away with it anymore, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, and I, th I do think that in terms of branding and storytelling, the idea of storytelling actually came out of community. Corporations have taken that over in terms of, of the story of somebody sitting in a, on a porch in a sunny afternoon having a soda, right, reminiscing. Um, I think storytelling can be um, profound in terms of 
movement building and movement changing. And really um, for corporate brands that are getting it right, they, they have to continue the messaging but when they are in the communities and not, the representation is not there in the board level, the representation is not there in the employee level, and yet they come up with wonderful mm-hmm. slogans. You know, I've watched, I've watched over the last few weeks how brands are coming out with different things, whether it's the, um, you know, the Blackout Tuesday and a lot of conversations were happening around, well, that's actually um, toning down the message from Black Lives Matter, right, and the movement and the protests. Um, so I think that if the intention is there, part of the, part of the way that people can use storytelling for um, systemic deep change is if they're ready to take that additional step to tell those stories that have often been dismissed as unreal. So I think it would be extraordinary if a company um, took the opportunity now during this movement, this global movement against uh, anti-Black racism and the violence that's been happening, to listen to some of the stories and, and you know, juxtapose the stories of, of folks who talk about their lived experiences as Black folks in a professional context as well as their everyday personal lives and the, the comments and the denials that come back at them. You know, when you look at hiring and, and uh, promotion, part of the issue that comes back when there's pushback against systemic um, bias or discrimination and wanting to see the changes like, oh, that person's only hired by merit or they should only be hired by merit and the fact that you're hiring them um, through a diversity initiative is wrong and and against our principles or um, juxtaposing people or putting people in sort of tension-filled positions. I think branding, and for those of you folks who are watching who are in Uh, PR and communications, you have extraordinary power. Um, You have opportunities to really take some of the stories that you're hearing, the things that you see uh, and are connecting with and integrate that into your your, um, team meetings and talk about, you know, the influencers. Who do we deem as influencers? Are you going in and reach out and talking to not necessarily the the CEO um, person in a suit, but the, the entrepreneur who's disrupting the industry that they're in, um, who's a black queer woman who's out in all of these things, or somebody uh, from communities who are in positions where their voices wouldn't be amplified, but for this moment. And I think that for me, uh, in terms of branding and storytelling and making a connect and actually creating shift is something that communities and um, corporations and PR and, and communications folks I think can really think about and make a a systemic uh, and long lasting change. I would also just add one final point to that. Um, I think uh, right now, because of the magnitude and the level of focus that's on this current issue, I I think brands and companies are really having to negotiate like whether or not they should rush to say something so that it doesn't seem like they're they're not thinking about it or if they should like actually figure it out. And my personal yeah. opinion, and I think this will differ from many others, but I think substance over speed is actually what's important here. And I don't think you necessarily have to, like I think you can say, hey, we, we know what's going on, we're acknowledging it. Um, 
maybe we don't have any communications for the next two weeks, or maybe we don't actually run any campaigns for the next two weeks because it would be tone deaf <laughs> and there's a more important conversation going on. Um, and then take the time that's required to develop a solution that um, you can be proud of and that like someone like me couldn't see right through. <laughs> because right now what's happening is someone like me is actually getting an outside, like a bigger platform. And if I see it, I'm gonna tell everybody that it's bullshit. Sorry, excuse my language. <laughs> and I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. I That's think correct. this is the moment for that kind of change and holding back on some of the, the, the messaging, but not having substance behind the messaging as well. Yeah, yeah. Right. Thank you both. Mm -hmm. So we've got around uh, 11 or 12 minutes to open up uh, for questions from the community and everyone on the call. So you can either uh, go into this chat or raise your hands and we would love to, to take your questions. I think Ingrid has a question. Hi, thank you. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Um, we really appreciate it. Uh, I just, um, going back to your, um, your comment on um, how, you know, communications can be extraordinarily powerful, um, if we're talking about communications and the power of language, what, in your opinion, are the most valuable um, key and key style guide resources and considerations that can be incorporated into uh, corporate style guides, frankly? For, it, uh, it, for, for me, I've incorporated it like the indigenous um, elements of style or sorry, elements of indigenous style. We've kind of made a point of updating and, you know, keeping abreast of the language and making sure that, for instance, instead of he or she, we just do they it just, you know, like things like that. But um, do you uh, like, uh, is there, do you have any other, you know, places or people you would follow? Do you just recommend, you know, just keep your ear to the ground um, or? I can give you, you. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, my my thought. I don't have resources handy. Um, Tommy might, but my my thoughts are more around process, and I think consultation goes a really long way. Um, so depending on the message, I would talk to someone who, like, if you're going to speak on behalf of or um, in. Uh, support of a community, like maybe talk to the community and find out what they think is appropriate. I, th I really think that will go a long way and you don't have to do it every time actually. Like I think you could um, invite those people into the development of a style guide mm -hmm. and um, go from there. That's, those are my quick thoughts. Thank you, yes. Yeah, and my thoughts are, um, I don't have any guides off the top of my head, but I think that uh, to echo what Marlon is saying about going into community. And I think part of, um, part of the piece is also going into um, academic spaces and community-based research spaces where folks have taken some time to look at language, um, to look at, you know, because as, as you know, language is not static. It changes over time. There's, it's dynamic. And oftentimes what I will, certainly what I see in the media side and not so much um, in the PR side, but there is people will be spoken for so instead of understanding what that community and how they identify it's taking something that's already prepackaged that they heard about six years ago and say okay well we're going to call these folks people of color instead of thinking about okay well is this person a member of the african canadian communities asking and i think the the fact that you're looking at the language there's certainly a style guides around why for example people capitalize b 
in black as opposed to lowercase and the significance of that. Um, and, uh, and depending on the industry you're writing for, obviously your style guide would change. And um, so I'll think more and reflect more on that and see if there's any more um, resources or thoughts that I can produce and send it to Dan and Crystal. And what I would just add to that, like, uh, just authenticity is probably the key. It's like, if you, um, if the message is coming from a team that has uh, three white male CEOs, you should probably acknowledge that because it's going to get you, um, gain you some trust. Uh, and you're, you're in acknowledging that you're going to probably cut out all of the stuff that you don't actually understand or know what you're talking about. And I also think the harder it is for a company right now or a brand to feel comfortable saying something, the more work they have to do on their internal systems. Because I like, I run a, run a project with uh, like a woman of color and we have had zero hesitations around how to deal with this. Cause we like, don't really need to <laughs> think too hard about what, what is, uh, what our perspectives are on this. Cause we've been thinking mm -hmm. about it our whole lives. So um, I think that's, yeah. it's an indicator. It's a signal of something Perfect. bigger and more important. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ingrid. Thank you for the responses there. Do we have any other questions from anyone else in the group? Mm -hmm. You guys are never quiet, so. I know we have covered a lot of ground, and I think um, we've covered some really amazing points. Ah, Dana. Uh. Hi. Yeah, thank you. This has been really, really powerful and valuable to hear. Thank you for sharing and being so candid um, with your experiences. Um, I, I think that it's really key what you were saying about having the people who you're talking about involved in those meetings and involved in those discussions and, and creating those, those resources. Um, is there a way, um, like ideally those people are around the table already, but um, as, as you were mentioning, sometimes people are just brought in for those photo ops or brought in for those videos. What's a good way, if, if they're not around the table already, to reach out to people to be involved in these conversations if they're not already there, that it doesn't seem like, hey, we're just pulling you in for this one thing only? Mm, great question. Well, a, a big part of that is how much investment have um, the, the organization or the business put into the communities. Um, because from the work that I've done, I work with uh, a lot of vulnerable communities that end up getting uh, researched on. Um, they, you know, th they need to, the corporation needs a, a nice slogan or, or something. So they go to their community for five minutes, they leave, the distrust is built. And I think creating, I've worked with organizations that are now actively thinking about their community involvement and community development. So they have a networking group. And, and they invest time and energy and resources in building that group so that uh, if they're not at the table, if you will, um, there is, a, there is a, an opportunity for people to continue to, to come back and have conversations. But that, I have to say that this has taken a lot of work by people like myself and others and advocates who have pushed uh, the message for a number of years that it's not okay just to go into the community for um, a quick conversation. And it, you really need to make that commitment because as Marlon is saying, people will call bullshit. It's, we're, and we're now living in a particular age where social media is the moment something happens, people are on it. 
-hmm. right? And so um, I think it's, it's important for that commitment level to be there. And there are lots of community-based organizations and businesses and entrepreneurs that are connected to the community and businesses can also connect to them. And, and so when you often hear in corporate speak, we don't, it's a pipeline issue or it's a connection issue, that's, that doesn't exist. There's, there's enough of us who've been doing this work for decades, multi-generational, brilliant, um, you know, engaged. And so I think that it's less of a pipeline issue and I think more of a, do we really want to do it issue? Right? And so that's just me being frank, but Marlon, what are your thoughts? That's such a common refrain in the startup ecosystem when they talk about um, the lack of black female founders or like people of color, it's always a pipeline issue. Um, but where does that pipeline really begin? Like, how did you get to Stanford in the first place? Right? And then, like, how did you get there? <laughs> so uh, obviously, there's a, a huge, like, like a massive can of worms there. But I just say, I, I was, as Tom was speaking, I was also thinking, you know, it's, I think it's okay. Like if, if I was like wondering how to create a message, I think it's okay to reference thought leaders who are respected within an industry or on a topic um, in your response, like, and, and find like a true North of like, this is where we're going. We've like done the homework here. We don't have anyone on our team. Like, I think, um, indigenous uh, people, for example, are like almost not represented at all in uh, corporate leadership. So there's like, like I'll using that as an example. Like I think you can, um, you know, without being totally um, immersed in the community or having direct access to it, I think you can probably figure out like a perspective or two um, by by looking at thought leaders and looking at publications and white papers. Um, so that like I guess the answer, answer to that is just homework like doing doing some homework before you try to take up perspective. Great thank you. Um, I'm mindful of the time but I did want to offer the opportunity for maybe one more question if anybody has um, any questions? Oh, we have a question in the chat from Melissa uh, Yulu. Uh, question, uh, what would you say are some key considerations for uh, uh, any of us looking to engage a JEDI training or discussion facilitator? Oh, hey, Melissa, go for it. Hi. That was just a question. I just, um, um, <laughs> I think that we've been talking so much, you know, it started with inclusion, diversity, and then EDI, now it's JEDI. And so um, what do you think are some key considerations for anybody looking to engage a facilitator such as you um, on this conversation for some of the clients that we represent? I'll, I'll start because I have a quick answer. I don't really know. Um, I haven't done a ton of this, uh, like, you know, uh, addressing this kind of a topic with this kind of an audience. So I, I assume Tommy probably has a better answer than I have. <laughs> I think part of it is, um, I've been getting, to be honest with you, uh, I've never seen my email box blow up so fast so, and my phone so quickly. Um, there are companies, uh, tech companies, um, large, you know, large uh, public institutions and private institutions that are, are really scrambling to figure out how do we have these conversations? Because there's something about talking about diversity and inclusion is difficult in itself, but when you start adding discussions about anti-black racism and racism and systemic discrimination, it's quite challenging. So if, if the company is hiring an external consultant to do this work, part of the issue will be, is that consultant well-versed in anti-black racism? Do they have a critical race and an intersectional analysis? So more of an academic background. Um, 
And are they a person with lived experience? Are they members of black communities? And, and so I've seen the push to have um, speakers come in and then the, the internal folks, the HR folks, um, and the, the learning and development folks, then take the materials and they start delivering these, these complex conversations around anti-black racism and systemic discrimination. That's problematic in itself. And I think that um, you need the expertise and you need to pay your experts. You need to you know, ensure that people get paid um, uh, a competitive wage or whatever their fees are in order to, to get started and, and move and uh, sort of investing in this in a long-term process. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, no, it is helpful. I, I, I do this com somewhat regularly and I wanted to make sure that we're asking questions that benefit the entire group too, because I feel like it's scary to ask some of these questions and yeah. this is meant to be a safe place where we can ask those questions. I think also, um, you were talking about some of the language um, uh, of, you know, when to capitalize pronoun, when to um, when to use people of color that's fading out, Canadian, African Canadian, African American. Like, if there was a glossary or source that you'd recommend to the group to reference for appropriate language, is there a trusted source that you would encourage that we would that we visit? Uh, trusted source. I, I think that there's many different sources. I'm in Ontario, so um, one of the things I do for my practice when I develop terminology and glossary of terms is I actually go to the human rights commissions because they tend to. I mean, we've been talking about this from a professional and personal issue. But there's also a legal obligation for folks to talk about uh, providing uh, discrimination-free work environments and. Uh, community and customer service. So human rights commissions, I find, have really um, interesting language and they also draw on the language that the courts are recognizing. Um, right. And that's helpful along with, I can send some um, links and resources to Crystal and Dan, of uh, right. uh, organizations that have really robust um, glossaries and, and terminology. That'd be great. Thank you. And, and that takes us to to one o'clock. I just wanted to say, Marlon and Tommy, thank you so much for, for sharing your stories, for giving us the time today. I think um, we all agree it was an incredibly important and powerful conversation. We really can't thank you enough for your time. Um, we hope that everybody that was on the call continues the conversation. Um, you know, we all work with companies, we all work with clients. Um, and you will ultimately have, you know, the power here to make some change. So, uh, thank you. Thanks for listening to Marketing Jam. If you enjoyed the show, head over to our YouTube or Facebook and give us a thumbs up and visit iTunes to leave a rating and review. Thanks again and see you next time. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.